1: Is it really healthy or is it just a marketing ploy? And anything that doesn't say whole grain and might say multi-grain or seven grain, that's unlikely to be actual whole grain. Actually most, I would say, commercially produced whole grain bread starts with the refined flour and just adds that kind of byproduct back in at the
0: end. Welcome to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wellness Fact Versus Fiction. And today we have the one and the only expert in nutrition epi, Dr. Deirdre Tobias. She is a nutrition and obesity epidemiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. She received her doctorate from Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and an MA in epidemiology and nutrition. Her research focuses on identifying diet and lifestyle factors for prevention of obesity and its major chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes. Dr. Tobias serves as the PI of NIH-funded research, including a sugary beverage substitution weight loss trial. She's passionate about improving and innovative research methods for nutritional epidemiology. She's assistant professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and instructor of nutritional epidemiology with former department chair, Dr. Walter Willett, and serves as the academic editor for the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And if that's not enough, she's also my friend. She is so brilliant and smart, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast to teach all of us today. Hi, Dee. How are you? Good. How are you? Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited for my audience to get to learn from you. And I'm excited for myself personally to also get to learn from you. And thank you for joining us. So why don't we start out with you just telling everyone about what is nutritional epidemiology and what do you do? And start actually with about you. How did you get into this and what made you interested in this and pursue your doctor in this and and then what even is it? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I'm still having
1: that same question um, asked myself daily. But so how I got into it was really just happenstance. I was pre-med and undergrad, wanted to go the med school route. I loved everything, health, biology, maybe not so much chemistry, but you know, I, I loved everything else around it. And Instead of going to medical school, I worked for a little while after undergrad, and the, it was a small pharma consulting company, and we did meta-analyses on like bariatric surgery and other medical devices, and there were a lot of epidemiologists in our group, and I had literally never even heard the word before, but when it kind of was described to me as this kind of bigger picture look at population level rather than individual patients in an office it really hit me like a ton of words. This is exactly what I love and how I think anyway. So I I could use all of my passion for health and biology and data and stats, but at this, you know, bigger picture level. So I went back to grad school. One of the first courses I took was obesity epidemiology with Frank Hu, who's now the chair of the nutrition department at TH Chan. And he you know, was teaching out of a draft PDF of what's now his textbook, asking us to find as many typos as we could before it was sent to the editor. It was just one of those moments where it's like, wow, like I just spent, you know, two years studying bariatric surgery procedures on something where we don't even really know the upstream causes of. And this was, you know, over a decade ago, and we still don't really have a ton of answers. And it just just kind of fell into place from there.
0: Oh, cool. That's so interesting. I actually have never asked you that before. And that answer is fascinating. And it's really interesting because I didn't even think of that with nutritional epi as like a more of a public health, like large scale, way to um, impact policy and public health, not even just in the US, but worldwide. So interesting. So for those of our listeners who don't even know what nutritional epidemiology is, or who've only heard bad things about it, which we know is unfortunately incorrect, because there's plenty of brilliant and important things about nutrition epi. Can you explain what it even is? Like, What is the study of nutrition epidemiology and just the foundations and basics of it? Epidemiology is just this field
1: of studying
0: the distribution
1: in a population of exposures and outcomes and establishing to the best of our ability these causal links. So if we see a disease is on the rise, What might be causing that? What can we measure exposure-wise to help explain that? Most recently, epidemiology has been tied to the COVID pandemic, right? So Fauci's an epidemiologist. Before then, most of us probably had never even heard the word and thought it was something skin-related, which is what we used to get a lot. Now we're all COVID doctors. So that's an infectious disease. And rather than infectious diseases, what I study are chronic diseases, so diabetes, heart disease obesity and nutritional epidemiology is just this more niche toolbox of, okay, well, I'm trying to study diet in particular as an exposure. And, you know, we have colleagues that study environmental epidemiology or um, occupational epidemiology. So nutritional epidemiology is, is just acknowledging that there's this you know, either difference or greater difficulty in in quantifying people's diet when we try to look at that as an exposure across
0: the population. That is a fantastic explanation. So we tried to discuss on our podcast, the meaning of different levels of evidence and how they impact our recommendations and guidelines and things like that. You know, we mentioned prospective cohorts a lot, and we mentioned that kind of data. And you are home of one of the big, Perspective cohorts, a few of them. And so, can you kind of explain, give everyone an uh, overarching idea of the prospective cohorts that have been founded from Harvard? They're huge ones. You have a few, and what that means, and then how even Nutrition Epi works? What is even it for someone that doesn't even know anything about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Feel free to cut me off if I start rambling because I can talk about this for hours, or if you need any further clarifications on anything. Um, But basically, if we have some sort of hypothesis on the public health level, like should we advise people to eat less red meat or to eat more vegetables or to decrease their soda intake, whatever it might be, if we have this hypothesis of a dietary exposure and an outcome. There are a number of ways we can go about testing it. And in, you know, everyone's dream scenario, we have this large randomized trial with a very specific exposure and we say, you eat this.
0: Yeah, in everyone's dream scenario, it's like a 20-year randomized control trial in a metabolic ward where Kevin Hall is controlling (laughs) all of the. Not realistic. Exactly. Not
1: not realistic at all. And probably not applicable because we change our habits and our diet over time. And there's secular trends and seasonal trends. And we want to know what the practical and pragmatic results would be too. But that aside, we can't intervene on everything. So several decades ago, back in the 70s and um, 80s, a few investigators at Harvard established these cohorts, which were just uh, a cohort is just, you know, a group of people and they enrolled over a hundred thousand women and not quite as many men. And they specifically selected to enroll participants in the healthcare industry. And the reason for this was One, really just of convenience, first of all, because they could market and advertise and recruit within hospital and clinical settings, but also because they felt that it was a population that would be knowledgeable of questions like, do you have hypertension or um, are you on any medications, and they would know how to answer that. So for the design of this specific cohort, which was intended to be male-based, so remote, rather than having people come in and take all the measures in person, um, it was important that there wouldn't be a requirement of like translating what all these terms and questions were asking. So having medical professionals in the the women's cohort is called the nurses' health studies. These were female nurses, and the health professionals, which is the men's cohort, It included um, medical doctors and dentists and other professions as well. So there was that kind of convenience of having these populations understand the lingo and all these questionnaires. And they enrolled all these participants back in the 70s and 80s, and every two to four years, update them via mail and now email um, on all of their vital stats, their lifestyle and behaviors and any incident health outcomes like diagnoses of cancer or diabetes, and it's been, it's still ongoing. So it's this incredible wealth of data of just this passive observing of a population over time. And it's quite remarkable actually, that it's, it's still going on and we have these participants so invested in the science that's come out of it. And so this cohort of participants isn't being randomized or told to eat something or given a pill versus placebo. They're simply just observed passively for whatever it is. We see their diet change over time. We see their weight change, their their aging, chronic diseases creep up. So they're a snapshot of, you know, arguably somewhat of a selective population because of their educational background and where the time they were enrolled. Um, But nonetheless, it's a pretty rich wealth of data. So that has been tapped into for a number of hypotheses. And some might say, well, you can, you know, data mine that to give you any answer for anything. But at the same time, there's really no other resource like this to look at these long-term health outcomes, right? Because when we're talking about heart disease, or even all-cause mortality, cancers, these are these are diseases that take decades to develop. And if you're looking, you know, at a population in their 60s and 70s, and you're following them for a couple of years, you're probably not capturing that relevant window of, of what exposures probably led to that disease. So, if we wanted to ask some nutritional related hypothesis, um, again, no, we're not telling people to eat anything, we're just measuring it. What we end up doing then is comparing okay, this half of the population tended to eat more vegetables, this happened to eat fewer vegetables, what were the incidents of Heart disease. Comparing these two groups over time, and you can see that the you know individuals that eat more vegetables had lower incidence of heart disease, and draw a conclusion about that association there. But we know that people who eat more vegetables are different from those who don't eat vegetables in countless number of ways. Like this isn't you know some sort of like secret epidemiologists or nutritional epidemiologists try to hide like in the paper. Like we know this from going in. And so we know that we need to also have data like smoking status, body mass index, any family history, all the other foods they're eating so that at the end of the day, we can evaluate, you know, vegetable intake and heart disease independent of all these other factors. Because if we're also having you know, lower incidence because they're less likely to be smokers. We don't want to say anything about smoking. We want to isolate the contribution of the vegetables, right? So there's a lot of statistics and study design considerations and really understanding this whole dynamic of other lifestyle factors um, that go into this from a science point of view. But the, the many of these cohorts, and not just the ones at Harvard, but now globally, there are so many good resources have this wealth of data, just passively observing, collecting information with long-term follow-up for health outcomes that can really be used in a number of ways. And when new hypotheses emerge, we can go back to this existing data. We don't have to start all over again with our new question. We can see what the observational data say.
0: I want to actually go back to one of the first things you said, which I thought was fascinating, which I never even of this way, because whenever there, there's nutrition debates, everyone says, well, it wasn't long enough trial, or it wasn't controlled enough, or, you know, and when I was joking, say, oh, ideally, people would want a randomized controlled trial in a metabolic ward that was forever, that was 20, 30, whatever years, and have Kevin Hall controlling, you know, uh, randomizing people's everything. The important point that you made that I think is really fascinating is that you said, you know, that doesn't actually account for just natural living, like a randomized controlled trial, or any sort of interventional trial, you're making an intervention, seeing what happens. But what's fascinating about these prospective cohorts is you are just observing people in their lives. Like you mentioned something really interesting, like seasonal trends and just various different trends over time. And that is so important. What an important level of evidence to contribute to the recommendations we make and such a positive and important and valuable part of prospective cohort data that I hadn't thought about before. Just even that just natural living aspect of it, just the regular what is real life that's occurring in people's lives. And it's so interesting. So I think that was really um, well explained. And thank you for elaborating on that. So with nutrition epi, there's the biggest, you know, criticisms that I've seen are things like a food frequency questionnaire, who, who even remembers what they ate x, y, or z uh, time, can you kind of describe for people, what a food frequency questionnaire is and how valid it is and how what are the intervals of it being checked in. I'm sure that you have uh, a lot of data and you can probably rattle off right now the validity actually of food frequency questionnaires because I do remember you briefly saying they're a lot more accurate than people actually think they are. And so can you kind of just go into it and explain what that is? Because I feel like that's the number one criticism uh, that a lot of people, including myself, don't even have a very deep understanding of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we hear it all the time, this
1: kind of point, counterpoint that, you know, I don't even know what I had yesterday. Of course, you know what you had yesterday. Or at least we could, you know, rule some things out. Like, did you have a steak yesterday? Danielle Bellardo did not have a steak <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> we could report that, right? Mm-hmm. So I get that people are concerned that there is a lack of precision. And we know there's a certain lack of precision. We're not trying to say that, Four cloves versus four and a half cloves of garlic a week would be beneficial. Where that that fine-tuned level of zooming in on the diet is nothing I think that nutritional Epi has ever tried to claim. And if someone is claiming that, like that hot hot dog, you know, in 30 seconds of life or whatever, um, <laughs> then probably run. <laughs> um, but you know, we have this cohort, we have all this data, we have other cohorts with all their data. How are we capturing exposure. And by that, I mean, when we say, okay, these participants eat a lot of vegetables and these don't, let's follow them and see what happens. How do we know that these individuals are consuming a lot of vegetables? That's our exposure, right? We're trying to divide people up into categories. And The food frequency questionnaire is probably one of the most common tools. And it, you know, is developed in with a population or country or culture in mind. So it's not one questionnaire globally. Um, and it tries to capture most of the variability of diet in the population. So if everybody eats the exact one thing, like that's not going to be very informative because how can you compare everyone who a population where everyone eats the same thing? So you're trying to pick up on the things that have the most kind of diversity among people in your in your study. So that's one thing. Second of all, the frequency of intake is how this is asked. So it's how often do you eat bananas? And it might say, you know, one banana, or whatever the serving size might be, if it's ice cream, like a half a cup, which I don't know who eats half a cup, I think that's a joke, it's more like (laughs) one or two. But, um, you know, so for a given serving, serving, how often do you eat this? And, you know, it's never up to nine categories of like several times a day. Um, so, you know, for the individuals who eat it quite frequently, there might be some errors there, right? Like, oh, I eat it like three to four times per month, but maybe it's more like one to two times a week. I don't know. Maybe that's different in the fall than the spring. But on average, you're getting their habitual intake in the long term. And that's really what we're trying to quantify. Not what did you eat yesterday? But on average, over the past year, are you someone who eats a lot of bananas? Zero bananas? A little bit of bananas? Where are you in that that range? So that's really the goal is to figure out where people rank in the population. And if we try to assign a value like you have X servings per day. And then when we compare that with like a food diary, we can see that there's probably some error, right? A food diary where everything is meticulously weighed and measured and calculated versus this kind of rougher estimate where I'm just asking to like try and rank people in the population. So this sort of validation study is is really important to know when I um, administered FFQ, a food frequency questionnaire, to my 100,000 nurses in the 90s, and I kind of rank everyone according to their intake of eggs, or of, you know, berries, how well does that match against their truths during that time? We don't know the truth, right? We can approximate it with different kind of measurement tools, like a diary. So we can have women write everything they eat for an entire week. Um, and there's limitations to that day six, you're probably eating really simple recipes because you're sick of writing down every ingredient, but We can compare, like on an average over those seven days, how many berries did they eat against what the FFQ said. And for different foods and different nutrients, the tools do better or worse. And we know this. And it's important to know your limitations. Sodium, for example, is incredibly hard to estimate in a food frequency questionnaire. Because if you're asking about pasta or prepared dishes or um, whole foods, you don't know the content of sodium of something at a restaurant versus... Um, you know, frozen dinner versus made at home. So there there tends to be more error with some of these like specific nutrients or micronutrients that can fluctuate all across the foods. But for the food groups, for macronutrients, like carbs, fat, proteins, the Food for Emergency Questionnaire does really well. And while it might not say exactly how many calories you're consuming, like we know that people underestimate a lot of things on average, and then that gives us an underestimate in total calories. We're still ranking everybody within the population pretty well. Well enough to say that people with high intake of vegetables versus moderate versus low were fairly confident in those categories. So the measurement error that people think of in terms of like, oh, I can't estimate how much like, you know, Coca Cola's in this round shaped mug or, you know, I get that, but that's not what we're doing either. So. Yeah, but understanding those limitations is definitely important. Um, I also kind of envision, to be totally honest, a time down the road when we won't even need to really rely on all these self-reported measures. We can quantify it from blood, for example, with a metabolomic profile or whatever it might be, an app. I I think there are definitely innovations down the road that will let us bypass that limitation that people claim altogether anyway. So, but yeah, that's, that's the gist of it you know, really knowing the limitations of the tools and its strengths and where we can really say, okay, we measure this well in our population enough to study it.
0: That is really interesting because like you had mentioned, you know, some of the most important strengths when we're looking at prospective cohort data is that you're able to, like you just mentioned, look at things like all cause mortality and cause specific mortality, such as, you know, heart disease or cancer over these long periods of time from these populations and be able to get these important hard endpoints versus looking at just in general, you know, there's the limitation, as you mentioned, may not be as precise, but the sacrifice for some precision in exchange is you're getting these general overall trends. It's just really interesting. So do you think that in general, with regards to nutrition epi as a whole, that we have yet, and I kind of am already in my head thinking what your answer is going to be, but do you think we kind of have yet figured out from the vast majority of a massive amount of data that's been generated in your field, what the general healthful diet trends are for all the people who keep saying, I have no idea what healthy food is, because you know, every single day there's a new you know, some sort of headline that you can't eat X, Y, or Z, but from the research you've done and from the massive amount of data in your field, do you think we can point to general overall healthy dietary patterns and what does that look like? Absolutely. I think that so much of the research will be to
1: kind of fine tune it, but not to identify some unknown pattern that had yet to be discovered that explains all of these epidemics like i don't think we're just so blindly walking around in all of this data and missing some big piece i think it's more just nitpicking around the edges at this point and that the staple of what's healthful in an overall diet and lifestyle is there and it's not going to look the same in terms of what a menu would be globally for sure but i think the the major chronic diseases that we see as you know these western diets are emerging can be pretty much pinpointed to a lot of what we think of as junk food and maybe we're saying it's carbs or the salt or the sugar or the you know the trans fat or the saturated fat there you know maybe a day where we know exactly which components contribute what amounts but i think given that, you know, over half of our foods in the US are ultra processed foods. And even those that we fall into categories like grains, for example, are mostly desserts and uh, cereals and like refined sugary cereals, or um, these other ultra processed foods that, of course, we know are probably not that good for us to begin with. Um, So where does that leave us? Um, I think that's you know, the bigger question is if we know that fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and, you know, probably lean sources of animal meat and, and really just kind of avoiding things that are ultra processed when we can, if we are able to, is probably going to get us most of the way there. I mean, even 20, over 20 years ago, there was, a landmark analysis that came from these cohorts that I mentioned at Harvard that um, had about 10, 15 years of follow-up. So, you know, from when these original questionnaires were given, there had been over a decade now of following these women for incident heart disease. And They hypothesized, okay, well, what what's the heart disease risk among women who just kind of adhere to really the bare minimum of what you would consider a healthy lifestyle, like currently not smoking. So you could have been a smoker, but you quit. That's great, right? That's something you can modify. Never smoker, you can't modify. If you spent you know a decade smoking, you can't take that back. So um, it was low hanging enough to say you're currently not a smoker. Currently not a smoker. Exercise 30 minutes at least most days, including walking. BMI less than 25, which I know in today's BM, obesity epidemic would be probably not quite as easy to achieve. And a generally healthy diet, which at the time they defined as higher in marine omega 3 fatty acids, lower in saturated fat, fiber, lower glycemic load, carbohydrates, which are um, more classified now as whole grains. And the half serving a day on average of alcohol because of its hypothesis of cardiovascular disease in particular. And the number of heart disease cases after 14 years of follow-up in this population, among those who stuck to all of those factors was five. There were five heart disease events in these 80,000 women, the ones that stuck to this pretty modestly healthy pattern, five heart attacks but only 3% of the women actually achieved this. So the the incidence of heart disease was so low and we can't say, oh, it was this one single factor from this one analysis. Of course we can't. But clearly there's so much of heart disease that can be prevented with just some pretty basic lifestyle modifications. And I think that's a great starting point. It doesn't point to causality of, you know, what factor in the diet or how much physical activity, or does, you know, running count or all of the kind of nitpicky granularity of it. But it shows us quite clearly that we can't say there's confounding because We're looking at all the factors simultaneously. So overall healthy lifestyle compared to less of that lifestyle was almost entirely preventing heart disease in in these women. Um, And that's been replicated many times in other populations and in men and for type 2 diabetes. There's something to be said about the modifiability of lifestyle for heart disease risk
0: and that it doesn't take anything drastic to get there. Is that the Stanford New England Journal of Medicine paper? from 2000? Yes. Yeah. So the reason why is I, word for word, I have everything you just mentioned. I have a, a slide. Every single presentation I give, I always mention this. Yeah, it was 84,000 women from nurses' health study that were looked at. And just as you so eloquently described were those big main five factors that reduced cardiovascular disease risk. I think that women, especially, you know, although cancer and breast cancer are super important, but heart disease is the number one killer of women and men. But I think for women, it doesn't get as much airtime. And so I think that you mentioning that these are five modifiable you know, risk factors that you can work on and the good starting point to jump off to reduce cbd risk so drastically is super important so two things i wanted to ask you to kind of deep dive into the nutrition epi about that i've been getting a lot of questions on and that i would really love your input that have been super demonized on social media lately and i want to start with one is whole grains whether it's because people hate gluten or because of the you know popularity of low-carb diets whole grains have been super demonized and I'm not saying everyone has to eat them if you don't like them don't eat them you know if you'd rather eat you know whatever else you enjoy eat it but can you explain um, I know this is a specific food but it's one that we do get asked a lot it was one thing that I was always like and when I have DD on the podcast I'm going to ask her because I know that so much of the Harvard data has looked at whole grains can you kind of explain what the research has shown us on whole grains. Are they really evil? Are they really going to make everyone obese? And uh, of course, knowing that this is in the context of, you know, general dietary pattern as well.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you think of like the wheat plant, back in the day, we had to kind of like manually crush it. Like when you make your guacamole in a fancy. molcajete that was like the extent of processing to make bread and it's because this this hard exterior around the inside goodness kind of prevented it from being flour and being bakeable and, and malleable so if you kind of crush it around a little bit you allow water and everything to get in and work its magic to make the elasticity of the bread so you know, the modern day processing found easier ways to kind of strip the bran off and leave the germ, so that we could have this even nicer flour at the end without all this fiber around it. But that left us with these refined grains that we see actually leading to a lot of potential health detriments. In short-term trials, we see it lead to weight gain and worsened insulin resistance. A number of health consequences have been associated with these refined grains. But if we take it back a back step, what's the point then of this kind of like the kernel and everything we're taking out when we make it refined? Um, so this like bran and this function of the, the harder outer exterior of each of these grains seems to be physiologically relevant when not only you know the chemistry of cooking that's a little, little bit different, but when it's consumed, it seems to maybe blunt the glycemic response or slow digestion. There's also a lot of vitamins and minerals that we're taking off when we go to, from whole to refined grain. So there are physiologically plausible reasons why whole grains would have a benefit that we lose when we re- like ultra-process them and refine them. And so the, these whole grains have been implicated for lower risks of heart disease, diabetes, colorectal cancers, a number of outcomes potentially because of the downstream benefits they may have during digestion and and also displacing these refined grains in the process right so if you have to choose something refined versus whole and you go for a whole there's also benefit in the fact that you're not eating the refined right even if whole grain is totally neutral and you're eating that in place of something that's potentially more harmful then that's another way that these these foods because everything's relative you know i i don't know why they would be demonized other than again like you suggested by this just all carbs are created evilly and even whole grains need to go i mean they certainly do have a glycemic response they are carbohydrates and if you like them and you want to incorporate them in your diet there are certainly some warnings you know don't fall for
0: like multi-grain or um, all of these other marketing tricks that wait explain this dig into all of the marketing tricks. I didn't know this. Go ahead. Yeah. So if whole
1: grain has this healthy halo and, yeah. you know, it can be kind of leveraged to make something seem healthier, like whole grain Cheez-Its or whatever it uh, might be. Uh, um, uh, you know, you. I think it's important to be aware of what you're eating at the end of the day. Is it really healthy or is it just a marketing ploy? And anything that doesn't say whole grain and might say multi grain or seven grain, that's unlikely to be actual whole grain. I mean, you can have ultra refined rice flour and wheat flour and other types of flour, and it's refined, it's multi refined grain. And, you know, there's other techniques, actually, most, I would say, commercially produced whole grain bread starts with the refined flour and just adds that kind of byproduct back in at the end whether that has the same health benefit as the original kind of unbroken down grain is not really clear large scale commercially produced whole grain does do that and there it also has to be i think only like 51% whole grain To be called whole grain in terms of like front and label packaging. So it's always important to look at the ingredient list. Whole grain being first means of all the grains in there, it's the most prevalent, but it could be like by, you know, chin error. It could be just barely more enough to put it first, because they know people look to see what's first. So let's put whole grain slightly more than the refined grain so that. They just see whole grains first and think, okay. so it might not be entirely whole grain. That's something to keep in mind. Um, But then again, if it's still like these ultra processed foods, even if it's made with whole grains, it's not clear that you get that same health halo, health benefit as if it was like truly whole grain, like, you know, all this baking that people have been doing during the pandemic with their like homegrown like wheat shafts and things like that. I don't know what, I did not get into the bread baking.
0: Me neither, but I like like loved following it. Like I just wish it was so good, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, even if it says something like whole grain. So for anyone listening who's like, I can't get into the bread baking, they don't have time. And they're like, I'm going grocery shopping. And like, what do I look for then to find like legit whole grains? Like they know to avoid whole grain cheeses that that's probably not uh, beneficial. But then what? can they look for a safe bet for good, truly healthy whole grains? Yeah, so 100%
1: whole grain. And if it's like locally baked then and less commercially produced, then it's more likely, I would think, to have a higher percentage of the grain being whole. But 100% whole grain has to be 100% whole grain. They couldn't say that. Um, Otherwise, as far as I'm aware, although you never know what, what loopholes are out there. But I think switching from refined to whole grain if you're not looking to make drastic changes in your diet it's one of the easiest low hanging fruits out there. It's, it's so easy because products have followed these trends and whole grain pasta, for example, has been around for like over a decade. And I don't think I've bought regular pasta in in years. It's just, it's so easy to buy the exact same thing, whole grain and same with, you know, breads when we buy those and You know, we don't buy a lot of cookies and crackers that I would say is probably falls into that category of like eh, buyer beware and wraps like tortillas. You can get those whole grain. Sometimes they are a few cents more, which I don't quite get because they're cheaper to produce, but because you don't have to go through that step of, of ultra processing um, to get to refined grain. So it's definitely a marketing thing, but yeah, there's just so
0: many lateral movements you can make that could. Have potential health benefits when it comes to whole versus refined grains. Yeah, it's a great point. Low hanging fruit is just making that little switch. That's like one of those things, like from regular soda to diet soda or water, like those other kind of switches that, you know, may seem inconsequential, but turn out to actually be pretty significant. Yeah. The other thing I wanted you to cover the nutrition, I and some of the data and your thoughts on that also gets demonized, and you're going to know what's coming, but it's fruit. So there's like this huge movement on social media that women, especially women in their thirties, women our age who have either PCOS or who are struggling with um, obesity and type two diabetes. There's a lot of predatory information out there telling them that they should be avoiding fruit in general. And we're talking fresh fruit. I'm not talking about orange juice. We're talking about fresh fruit. But what does the nutrition epi say about the healthfulness of whole fruits? And is it something that people should be avoiding? I already can predict the answer to this. What does the data show us? Because I know that in the uh, prospective cohort data, there's lots of looking into fresh fruit.
1: Yeah, I don't know of many studies, if any, that show that fresh fruit and all of these cohorts and outcomes are detrimental. It's like a fear mongering because it maybe. Competes with the narrative of carbohydrates, and it's one of these inconvenient foods that can't be explained away with data. So it just gets kind of hyped up as as something that's bad. Like seriously, you're doing God's work trying to fight all these like misinformation claims because in nutrition they're so rampant. For fruit, yeah, I, I don't really get it. I think it's not ultra processed, so we can't you know really pin it on industry it's it's really just must be the, the fear of carbohydrates i think i could see ways that people struggle to incorporate fruit in their diet and may end up like adding it on top of their food that's like really the only thing i can think of and then you mentioned juice so juice getting this free pass because oh it's fruit like yep. i think that is a misconception that i hope totally. by now most people Ascribe juices to be in this sugary beverage category, because in terms of most of the data, despite healthy people drinking juice, they're still associated with higher risks of many chronic diseases. So juices, no. Whole fruits, yes. And, you know, you can go to the supermarket and get frozen if it's not in season, which is amazing. Um, You can make smoothies and you don't even have to add anything. Just add enough water to like break down the frozen fruit. You don't have to like shove in a bunch of like sugary yogurt or, you know, other things. You can really just make a smoothie of fruit, believe it or not, or add things if you need texture or flavor. It blows my mind where some of these claims come from. And I don't know, get like the paleo, is it because it's not like ancestrally
0: consistent? I don't really know. I think paleo allows fruit. I think it's mostly low carb keto, but, but I do think there's this, you know, of course, you know, there's this kind of false narrative with insulin resistance and fruit. But what you're saying is that when you look at the robust amount of data, that's long-term data in these prospective cohorts, that whole fruit is generally associated and you mentioned, you can't think of data where it shows that it's negatively associated with any negative outcome, outcomes, but mostly positively associated with all uh, beneficial positive health outcomes in in all the data yeah. you can see. And, and fruit's heterogeneous. So there could be
1: nuance within that. You know, if we look at tropical fruits versus berries versus you name it, there of course would be heterogeneity if the biology is really there, right? Because there's differences in fiber quantity or polyphenols or all the other nutrients across them being able to pin what is it about fruit generally on uh, that that seems to be beneficial i think would be nearly impossible mm-hmm. and again if you're eating fruit you're not eating something else but so there's also that benefit right we have to think of diet as this overall like plate of what we eat in a day and the benefits of foods may very well be what you're not eating. But that's important. That's still a reason to promote it, right? And I think that um, some fruits may fall more into that category, but others clearly seem to have um, evidence that their relationship with long-term disease is lower, regardless of what you compare it against. And, you know, then people like to take that. To the extreme and say, oh, it's the resveratrol, and we need to isolate oh, that goodness. Compound. And you know, then you go on to the, off into the often to the deep end on the other end, yeah. which is this extreme reductionist oh. view that we can isolate the one factor, which I I think is a little bit silly. We certainly can't do that from the observational literature. I even trials like if you can create berries that have it versus don't, then maybe. But yeah, it's that gets pretty messy pretty
0: fast. And something also to be skeptical about if you go off in that other direction, so. So, okay, so everyone listening, you don't have to be scared of fresh whole fruits or whole grains, despite what you've heard on social media. Okay, so next thing I wanted to ask you about is one of the other big things that's a critique of nutrition, Epi, that I was hoping you could just touch on and explain is healthy user bias, which is something that's brought up often. So what is that? And- um, you know what kind of in in basic terminology, what kind of you know statistical methods, or what do you guys do to kind of counteract that? And how valid is that complaint about nutrition at B?
1: Yeah, so it's certainly a valid argument, and and basically what I think people mean by this healthy user bias, we use different terminology like in the trenches, but it's it's if you have your population separated out by like this, let's go back to veggie eaters versus not low veggie eaters. Those who eat veggies are more likely to be seeing their clinician and also eating more fruits and whole grains and not smoking. And so you get kind of these clustering of healthy lifestyle behaviors in certain population or certain subgroups of your population. So they look healthier for all outcomes. And that's not because of the one thing you're studying. It's because of all this other stuff. But if we go back to that Stanford paper, all of the lifestyles clustered together, like there's nothing left to explain that when we compare these healthy users versus those who aren't. And we statistically control for a lot of these factors when we conduct our analyses. Because going in, we know these differences exist. We know that people who eat a certain thing or do a certain lifestyle behavior are different than those who don't in many, many ways. In many ways we can't even measure. But it's important to know that and understand it, and not just write it off as, oh, it's con- there's too much confounding, which is what we call it, or healthy user bias or whatever it might be. That's kind of a throwaway complaint like in epidemiology, we would do with that criticism is say, okay, what is it that we're concerned about we didn't measure? How big of an effect would that have on our outcome? How strongly correlated is that other factor with the exposure we're interested in? And does all of that math, does the magnitude of all of that add up to explain away what we're seeing for vegetables? And more often than not, it doesn't. Or they say, oh, well, socioeconomic status or whatever it might be. And we can adjust for those things or exclude people who ever smoked and just focus in on never smokers. And we can statistically control for so many of these concerns. And if the results do change, then we would be concerned. There's this, you know, maybe it was due to smoking, and there's just trends that correlate. Or, you know, we see that it persists, despite all of these additional steps that we take. So this healthy user bias or confounding is, is really just like a weak response. And, you know, doesn't go anywhere. And of course, we consider that that's like literally what Our toolbox is to do is to look at all of these potential biases. So we do, we take that into account. And often it does explain things, and many times it doesn't. And when it doesn't, we follow it up and look at a different cohort. And also over time, meaning like decades, like what has been considered healthy has changed. So what was considered healthy in the 90s when these women were reporting on diet is very different than what would be considered healthy when they're reporting diet today. If vegetables were really just some halo of healthfulness that these women were, you know, the, those associations were biased because they're just really doing a bunch of other healthy things, you know, we can we can look at trends over time. And if they persist, despite changes in what was considered a healthy diet, like low fat, low carb, et cetera, then, then that also gives us some reassurance. So
0: there are many ways analytically to kind of dive into that. That, you know, it makes me think of 90s is um <laughs> snack wells, remember <laughs> snack wells? Like, I, those- I don't, but it's like oh the classic product and right, the low like, fat. It's like, the, <laughs> like the low fat cookies yeah. that were like from the 90s. They were called totally, snack yeah. It's like so funny because, like, yeah, they were considered healthy, but they were really just processed, right?
1: Yeah. And so, if you look today in a population at who was eating process cookie things, yeah, low fat it wouldn't be the healthy people. Yeah, it, would be right. the, it would be the least healthy people. And right. all the like healthy user bias would be for people not eating that, right? So exactly. everything is very population specific. And um, you can do the analysis in other cohorts globally where healthy user effects and correlated behaviors are very different. And if the relationship persists in those between your exposure and your outcome, then
0: you have more reassurance um, that it's not this artifact of bias. That's, that makes total sense. Yeah. So for someone who's listening now that wants to start reading nutrition epi research, they're a med student, they're in college, they're in residency, they're in fellowship, they're in attending, they're not even in medicine at all. And they're like, I'm just interested in starting to learn how to read nutrition epi research. And they aren't able to take a whole course on it. What are just some basic tips for someone just looking at an, a research in nutrition epi that they can kind of use as a safeguard to just start reading it and and what to look out for, what to kind of evaluate and where do they go? I love this. this. Yeah. I love this question. So
1: I am a true data geek. And for anyone who doesn't even, you know, know how to navigate through a paper, Look at table one. That's the first that. table in your that. in your cohort analysis, right? This is literally just a snapshot. It should have you know row one or column one, two, three, four, whatever how many categories of their you know dietary exposure it might be, and then all the baseline characteristics. so age, BMI, family history, current statin use, whatever it might be down that first row, first column. So just sit with that and say, okay, there's this set, subset of the population who eat very little of this food. There's some who are in the middle, and then there's these columns who eat a lot. How are these people different? And just like, okay, the ones that eat a lot of this have a lower BMI, so they're like, they have more physical activity, they're less likely to be smokers, they have higher socioeconomic status. Just like understand the exposure in the context of the population that's being studied. And because we, like I said, we know these people are different and that, that lens is so important. And that same table will look so different in every population globally that you, you generate it for. So now, you know, okay, who are these people that eat a lot versus who are these people that eat none um, or eat very little? And then you can go to the results with that in mind. If it's like a single food or like carbs or fat or like, you know, a nutrient and they're comparing people with high incrementally higher intakes. What is that being compared to? What are those individuals in that lowest category who aren't eating as many eggs or whatever? What are they eating instead? Because everything's relative. So when you look at the results and they're saying, wow, this is a twofold higher risk in people who ate a serving per day versus those who ate none. Well, the people who ate none had to be eating something else. So if they provide no information on that, then... Kind of like be cautious in that interpretation. But I think epidemiologists are increasingly aware of you know this and trying to do more like substitution analyses where you explicitly say, okay, eggs versus whatever, you know, oatmeal. So there's
0: no placebo in nutrition.
1: Yeah. So this this basic like paradigm of Treated, untreated just doesn't apply because we're always eating something, right? And so it's everything's relative to what you're not eating or what you're eating instead. So yeah, that table one, know who your population is, what is different about the people who are eating more or less. I think that would go a long way. And then you can start to get an appreciation for the challenges in the analysis that are mostly there to address those differences, right? That's ultimately what all of that method section that you probably skip over is trying to, to explain to you. Totally. Is, yeah, look at these participants, they're very different. So now we had to do all this nerdy stuff to try to control over it. And you don't have to really know what all that is until, you know, I don't know, you go off and get your PhD in it, but that table one will give you an appreciation that there is a difference. If it's a trial, randomized trial, so predimed, that table one's gonna look so different because you're gonna have, people randomized to diet A and people randomized to diet B. In a in trial table one, everyone's going to look identical across the two columns. That's why we did the trial to make everyone
0: artificially by design the same at baseline. That's what randomization is supposed to take care of is, you know, evening out that distribution. But yeah, so as you're mentioning with nutrition epi, with prospective cohorts, you're looking at um, looking at table one, as you mentioned, it's going to look totally different. That is such a fantastic tip. Report back. Tell me Tell me if it works. Well, we'll give you Dee Dee's, um Twitter afterwards. You guys can let her know if that is what you are doing and if it's changed the way you look at nutrition studies, because I've come a long way from being very frightened of nutrition epi. And I feel like it's one of those things that is very underappreciated people think that they can understand it and interpret it. And then the more you learn about it, I, at least my personal opinion is the more complex it is, and actually the more difficult and complicated it is. So I have respect for the scientists like you who specialize in this and are experts in it. So for anyone listening, that's thinking, okay, wow, I want to go get my PhD in nutrition and epidemiology. This is so interesting. But what's your advice? I mean, I don't see why not. If you've already like nailed that as your passion, go do it. I
1: think there are many great institutions in the U.S. and around the world for epidemiology. And really that time to to learn the methods is what the PhD is awesome for. And, uh, you know, you can then go and pick up an interest in whatever disease outcome or exposure of interest. And you have that tool set of... Of different study designs and biostatistics. And it's kind of a, a great skill to bring to whatever the hypothesis of the year might be. You know, there are a lot of researchers in the nutrition field who like start the opposite way. They are so passionate about like carbs or low fat, And then try to make the science fit that rather than the other way around. And Yeah, being, I don't know, being more on the method side, I feel like is a little bit of a luxury and that I don't have to commit to what the science is. I think, you know, I just want to do the best, most transparent, rigorous method to address whatever question is needed to be answered to improve public health, whatever the outcome might be. So epidemiology is great because that's what you're learning. ability to question and to kind of like innovate the research to answer the questions that that are
0: important. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for this masterclass in nutrition epi 101. For everyone listening, I'm sure you've inspired a lot of future nutrition epidemiologist because- Oh, I hope so. That would be awesome. That was super helpful. And that's helpful for, I think everyone, whether or not you're in medical field or in science, or you just are a hobbyist trying to learn how to interpret science, you know, in a more robust way. I think this was super helpful. And I certainly learned a ton as well. So Dr. Tobias, tell everyone where they can find you on social media so they can all tell you I want everyone to tag Dee Dee on Twitter and tell her if the table one method has worked for you. So give everyone your social media.
1: Yeah. So my first name, Deirdre, D E I R D R E underscore Tobias, T O B I A S, uh, at Twitter. And that's all the social media I do. I don't, I'm not on like Facebook or anything,
0: but. (laughs) Are
1: people
0: still on Facebook? Oh, I think, I think so. I uh, I replied to a Hotmail account today. I I guess who knows if you are up to. Hotmail. Oh my God. I didn't know that was still a thing. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely link your Twitter in the show notes. Where can everyone find, also if they're interested in the kind of research you do at Harvard, where can they find information about that?
1: Yeah. So if you just Google my name, there's a landing page for Harvard researchers that'll, I think it automatically updates, which is great. So you can just kind of like see the more, more recent stuff that sources, I believe, just kind of straight from PubMed. Perfect. And that's, that's a good spot to go.
0: Perfect. Well, we yeah. will also link to that in our show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dee. Dee. You're welcome. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at nealblardomd and our podcast page at Wellness Fact versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.